Does anyone have any comments or questions? Last week we were talking about, some of us, about coming on the path later. In life? Oh, yes, because Master said if you're 40 or if you come on the path after 40, you have a really tough go of it. Well, um, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking some of the reason why was because I needed, I was in group therapy for several years, and I needed to do that to... uh, to get more mature and in an egoic way before I could come here, or I wouldn't have made it. Well, or what? I'm not. Maybe I'm not saying the right words, but well, what you're know. trying to say is you couldn't have come any sooner, so you're just going to have to cope with the fact that you're over forty. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's sort of like when Master makes a statement like that, just there it is, and it doesn't really make any difference what our just self justification is for not coming before forty. It just is a simple fact that if you waited that long, then you have more inertia to overcome. But it can also just equally be argued that you have the maturity and the determination. It's kind of like being older parents. It's hard of you to chase after the kids, but you're a lot smarter when you're chasing after them. So I don't know which way is better or worse, but it's just a fact. It's important when now... Uh, when Master gives us inconvenient facts, that we not try to mitigate the facts. Without, not that that's what you're trying to do. Chidambar? Um, you also commented on the fact that most of the people that come to his church were over 40 because they've already gone through their life experience, found it didn't work, and now they have to find something that does work. That's what Swami found. Is that what you meant? Yeah. Yeah. Yoga Master, Dash. too. Yeah. But you know, I was thinking about that today because I've been, as you know, I'm gradually creating this chronology about Swami's life. So I'm now, um, I just finished gathering the information for 1989. And I'm looking at all the pictures and everything. And of course, everybody is young. And so it's like we're we're always concerned these days because not everybody is young and so many people are white-haired. And yeah, I mean, this room looks nice tonight. But, uh, uh, but there's, and, and you know, there's all this what can we do about it? But there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. People come to the spiritual path because they're drawn to it. You can't make a generation of people who aren't interested be interested because if they're not, they're not. And, and to a very large extent, the crowd that I was part of, we were interested when we were young and we're interested when we're older. It's just the karma of the generation. There is, fortunately, seemingly, a generation of people who are less than 30 or 30 who are interested now, but there's just nothing... I mean, I was just thinking about how weird it was at that time. Satya, when, when I came and I was 24, he was 50. My gosh, he seemed so old. He did have white hair, but he just... Satya was just so old. We all thought of him as old. Amazing. It was, what was amazing to us is that an old person would be interested. It was so unusual. <laughs> Hanel, of course, was... Hanno was probably about my age. He's probably 70. But he had a, the venerable old man look about him because he had the wispy white beard and the white hair. But they all seem so ancient. The two of them seem so ancient to me. But there's nothing you can do about it. None. Zero. So we hope for the best. <laughs> I think there was a big gap. There's a really big gap of people who are building their <clears throat> retirement funds in their 20s. But now those people have gotten to be 45 or 50, and then, thank you, there's a crowd of you guys coming up. All right. 
So, number 186. In his last years, the master became much less reticent in referring to his true state of consciousness. One day at the Lake Shrine in Pacific Palisades, we were moving a large statue of the Buddha. Someone asked him, where would you like the Buddha to sit, sir? The Buddha, he replied with a slightly mischievous smile, prefers to remain standing. (laughs) So, you know, um, Master was so totally at ease with his state of consciousness that he could make a joke about the Buddha being himself. So that just was fun. 187. The Master expressed his need for masculine power in his work. Only thus he must have felt would his mission generate the power it needed to exert a broad influence on society. At his desert retreat in 1950, he said something to me when we were alone that I have quoted, excuse me, that I have quoted elsewhere, but never so clearly as here. Master said, apart from St. Len, every man has disappointed me. He paused a moment as if to impress on me the urgency of his meaning, then added with great emphasis, and you mustn't disappoint me. I knew that his disappointment wasn't over the spiritual zeal of his men disciples, even though fewer came to him than women. I understood, therefore, that his words referred to the men's understanding of the broader needs of his mission. Though many of them were deeply dedicated spiritually, more than zeal for their own attainment was needed if the work was to expand and change the world. No man apparently had ever grasped the vital importance of his mission to the world. Masculine energy was needed for it to be spread and understood in its broadest context. Inwardly, I vowed that day never to disappoint him. To the best of my ability, I have remained faithful to my vow. Before I comment on this, I'm going to actually read the next one because they really go together. Number 188. I asked the Master once during our days together at the desert retreat a question that others must sometimes have asked, at least mentally. Oh, no, this is actually, well, I actually, I'm thinking that I'm going farther. Well, at least mentally. Sir, I said, were you Jesus Christ? Hmm. What difference would it make, he replied indifferently. The ocean of spirit is the reality. If one wave or another one becomes aware of its oneness with the ocean, both have attained the same awareness. The issue isn't how high the wave is. In that case, any tall wave might prove, in comparison to some other wave, to be the shorter or the taller. In the case of masters, however, it is the lowness of their wave of manifestation that determines their greatness in God. A little wave knows more than the high waves can that the goal, the perfection of which Jesus spoke, is to become one with the ocean of spirit. That's just such a, um, um, you know, the, the way the linear human mind works, it just rebels against that so strongly. You, you, we, we, we're so persuaded of the importance of our individuality 
that we just don't understand how you, how you can be outstanding by being um, absorbed. And then you have the, the, the weird paradox of when you're absorbed in the ocean, suddenly, apparently, you become much more distinct. You know, a person like Swami Kriyananda or Master or Saint Lynn or any of them, the, the, the power of their magnetism is so intense that you can't help but think that there's this swooping energy. It's, it's the, what is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. It just, your mind just gets so flipped on it. There's so many different levels in which you can understand this. The master accepted, however, that outward differences do exist, even among great masters. Those differences are not a question of their spiritual realization, but rather of the outward roles they've played. Comparisons in this world are inevitable. Some masters have important, that is to say public, roles to play. These, however, are more outward considerations. They have no bearing on a master's true greatness, which must be determined by his closeness to God. In the case of a true master, closeness to God means remoteness from the little ego. Perfect closeness to him is the same for all masters. A wave may be higher or lower than other waves, but where the criterion is the elimination of the wave altogether, there can be only oneness. There cannot be competition. Perfection lies in how fully merged a master's consciousness is in the infinite ocean. But, Swami tells us, you know, on one hand we have that master, you know, these are, these are, uh, nuances that I don't, just you can't really get with your head. You, you can't think it through and define it. But we have that story that Swami tells all the time about how Master looked at him so strongly, you mustn't disappoint me. And then he made that, um, all the years of his 87 years, it was, he, he never for a moment um, let down his determination on that. Toward the end of his life, well, let me be fair about that. Toward the end of his life, when he really saw that he'd made it, he, his, his bob did change. During those early years when he'd been thrown out of SRF, um, what he was trying to do had never been done before. He was all by himself against such, so many obstacles. You know, the, the, the power and the determination were just overwhelming. It was unrelenting. This is completely trivial, but it was a really interesting experience. I was a small person when I was younger. I mean, I'm still a small person, but I was strong, even though I, I didn't look very big. Strong relative to my size. I worked um, in the kitchen, and I had to haul 50-pound boxes regularly. And I could actually lift 100 pounds, which was really not that different than my own weight, when I had to. I didn't as a rule, but I remember having occasionally just having to move something, a big bag or something, and I just hauled things around all the time. I went shopping once a week into town and bought in, you know, big supplies, loaded, unloaded. So I thought of myself like that, and it was true. Um, and one time, we were, for some reason I think we were down in Santa Cruz, but I can't imagine why we were in that area, but we were somewhere, 
and we were visiting with this, uh, we were visiting the family. There was this woman named Mrs. Mohini Singh, and she was the cultural attache to the Indian Embassy in San Francisco. She was from New Delhi, and she and her family became friends of Swamiji's and all of us. She had three children. And we would see her here and there. Swami stayed with her in Delhi at different times. She had a son, Romit, big, strong, extremely handsome, very aware I am, big and strong and handsome guy, Romit Singh. And uh, for some reason we were somewhere. And Swami, I think he, he, was, he was, it was about Romit mostly. Was this all the same day? Just get this. No, these are two different events. That's why I'm remembering this. But Romi, I'll tell the Romi part. Swamiji was also very strong. And he, um, he challenged Romi to leg wrestling. Because Romi was very proud of the fact that he could. And so Swami Kriyananda and he, they lay down on the floor and they put their legs up like this. And Romi cheated. He, he pushed before Swami was ready and got Swami's leg down to like this far to the ground. Um, and then Swami drove him all the way up and all the way back. And Romit was like about 20 and Swami would have been then like 50. And you know, Swami didn't look strong. And he, he would often talk about that, Swami did, about energization and so on. Now this must have been, it's hard for me now to remember whether they were the same cycle of time, but I don't think they were. But somehow or another Swami started charging, uh, challenging everyone to arm wrestling. And uh, just, Vidura was out running and then Vidura came back and, and nobody could beat Swami. Nobody could come even close. And I foolishly, this is what the only part I was going to say. It took me a long time to get to the point of the story, forgive me. Um, I actually thought I could try because I thought of myself as pretty strong. Swami looked at me like, you're kidding, of course. But I was seriously thought I could do this. So we, we, were, we were like this. And what I remember is that Swami defeated me before he put any physical pressure on me. <laughs> I just, I vividly remember the feeling of his willpower pushing my arm down before there was any, I mean, of course, that would be Aikido. I mean, that would be the no normal martial arts, except we weren't as familiar with that. But I, I still remember sitting there and just feeling that willpower just causing me to absolutely turn to jelly. I just couldn't do anything. And we were, we'd all tried, well, this was the part that was, Badura was out running and we'd all tried. Badura was always an athlete. And uh, we were just hoping that Badura was our champion. And he finally came and he was in his little running suit and he played the whole thing up like this. And, and he sat in front of Swami and Swami went like that. And it was just, nobody had a chance. We were completely done. Anyway, it was great fun. Um, but what I was saying really truthfully was, what I was really wanting to talk about was that willpower, it never stopped. I mean, it never slept. It never, it never quit. From the time I met him until the, in the last years of his life, he exhaled, sort of. He relaxed. And then, you know, he just casually tossed off a, a few great books and did a few other things. But it was like he knew he'd done it. He hadn't failed Master, and that was the whole point. But the, the, um, The commitment to discipleship uh, was, I mean, there were so many lessons in it, in willpower, in accomplishment, in faith, in magnetism. 
But what was underneath it was this absolute, single self-definition. I am a disciple, I have a commission from my guru, and I will fulfill it. Or if I don't fulfill it, I will die trying. And I mean, on a number of occasions, really literally, it, his, his health, his heart would, when his heart began to act up, which was by the early 80s, his heart was causing him trouble. When he was writing the oratorio as an example, he was having congestive heart failure, which is a, a medical term, which is exactly what it is. Your, your heart gets congested and his limbs were beginning to swell and he was very short of breath and everybody was just begging him to stop. And he said, Satan's trying to stop this, the oratorio meaning. He said, I'll die trying before I'll stop. And he, he just wouldn't. And he would often push his body to that point. And it really was a satanic play because whenever he would per persevere, he would often become better in a matter of hours or overnight. It would be just like a, a way that... Um, but he, he, he was a disciple. And m more than that, and this is what I was wanting to say, and there's a couple of more later that are even more important for this, um, I was listening to Swamiji talk in a, one of those treasures talks. And it was, I think it was for Master's birthday some year or something like that. And he was talking about how Master wanted him to be less intellectual. And uh, Swami thought that meant that Master wanted him to be less intelligent, you know, sort of like turn off his mind. And he had to go through learning what Master really wanted from him. I read somewhere else that Swami said, when he first came, he was more impressed with the way Bernard gave sermons than the way Master gave sermons, because Bernard was so erudite and, you know, sounded so uh, professorial. And he said Master was so simple. He, d he didn't know how to relate to the simplicity of Master. He could relate much more to the intellectuality of Bernard, but gradually he began to see it differently. But in his very early time with Master, he, Master told him he wanted him to develop devotion, so Swami said he was working on chanting a lot and uh, meditating a lot, and then Master told him he wanted to, him to write articles for the uh, magazine. And uh, Swami was meditating, all, working all day and meditating in, all evening, and he just didn't see when he was going to do it. And after a few months, Master said, how are those articles coming? And uh, Swamiji said, well, sir, when am I going to write them? I don't have any time. I'm meditating all evening and working all day. Well, he said, meditate less and write articles. And Swamiji was shocked, you know, because meditating was what he was supposed to be doing. But the talk that he's giving in which he said that was a talk about attunement. And what he was saying is more important than any exercise, any technique or anything that you do is that you have to be in tune. You have to be receptive to what the guru is trying to give you. Now, of course, Swamiji was right there. Master was in the body. It was self-evident. He gave him the words. And then he had to just deal with the direct suggestion. But Swami has many examples of attunement in his own life after Master's passing. So it isn't a requirement, only that he be told. But in that context, Master had a work that had to be done. And what Swami said that was so interesting is he said, if Master's work had just been to sit by the Ganges, I would have just sat by the Ganges. It wasn't like in himself he really had this need to do it, 
but he had an, an absolutely compelling need to be Master's disciple. And if this is what Master wanted to have happen, then this is what Swami wanted to have happen. And the, the complete willingness to surrender personal preference. Um, and that's our reality. I, I'm gonna, I'll talk about it more in one or two sections from now. But that's our reality too. And it isn't so much that it really matters one way or another, as he's saying here when he talks about Jesus Christ, which to our minds, you know, was Master Jesus or not, can loom is like such a big question. But from Master's point of view, he just looks at it like it's all the ocean. What difference does it make? And, and we see these great figures, but all they see is just the power of spirit running through. But they do vary in the public work they have to do. And whether we would have chosen it or not, you know, we have a master who has launched great movements. <laughs> That's the next section we're going to read. Okay, not quite yet. Um, so on 189 it says, Are you an avatar, sir? I asked him once. It would take such a one, was his quiet reply, to bring a mission of this importance. During this last period of his life, he was very much withdrawn from outward consciousness. He hardly seemed even to have a personality. Truly, as he often told us, I killed Yogananda long ago. No one dwells in this temple now but God. He's talking about himself as in, in the ocean. To the monks during this late period, this is 190, to the monks during this late period of his life, he said, when I see that God wants me to be born again, think about that, when I see that God wants me to be born again in another body to help others. Now, what, what are we talking about? I, I've read that many times. When I see that God wants me to be born again in another body to help others, and when I see that I am to reassume a personality. Isn't that fascinating? I, I've heard Swami say this many times, but I always heard him say, when I see the personality, I have to assume. But here he writes it, when I reassume a personality. It seems at first a bit like donning an overcoat on a summer day, hot and a bit itchy. Then he concluded casually, I get used to it. And this is again where at a certain point all of this becomes natural. <laughs> In another talk I was listening to, to Swami, uh, from Swami recently, I think I talked about this a little bit Sunday, when he was talking about time and how, um, how different superconsciousness is than we think it is. And he, Swami was trying to explain to us how the personality that we live in, that we have such a, a tight relationship to, is so actually... Um, distant from our true self. And the closer we get um, to liberation, and he, what he was talking about is when you become a jivan mukta and there's no more ego to, to which your karma can affix, but you still have the memory of all those lifetimes and you still identify with all those experiences. And that was when he was trying to say that the personality that we think defines us when you actually shed it, you realize it never had anything to do with you. So I, I was just trying to stand back a little bit, you know, 
being a female, being an American, being a certain age, having these life experiences, all of the personality attributes and psychological complexities that have defined and tortured me for a great deal of this incarnation. Like, what if? What if it was just, what if it was clear, really clear, that that was just, uh, if you think of it like the great ocean and you just think of it as this sort of billow on the top. I mean, how could you ever think that the ocean would be described by that billow? But when we're riding it, and this is also how, um, how someone like Swamiji, who accomplished so much and so much um, attention swirled around him, could yet stand in the middle of it and be so completely indifferent to it. I remember charmingly he said once, he said, that as the years pass, I feel the myth of Kriyananda swirling around me increasingly. What he called the myth of Kriyananda. You know, people's regard for him and all of that. And then he said, but inside I'm just the same old fellow. <laughs> but just that complete separation, it just never crossed his mind. This is what Yogananda said. I killed Yogananda long ago. That all of this that swirls around me there's no temptation, there's no effort um, required to not identify with it. What freedom there would be in that. And then somewhere you go off into the infinite and then you have to reassume a personality. And this, this lifetime is going to require an Indian person built, but the same um, world-changing energy that seems to be characteristic of all his incarnations. It's just, it's amazing just to meditate on, on it. You meditate it on from the point of view of Master, from the point of view of Swami, and then you try to get a little tiny thread of that and pull it into your own reality and imagine that, that your personality is just assigned to you. Not that I'm born into it and that it's mine, but it's just assigned to me. It's just the part I'm going to have to play this time. How different that would be. Well, that's where when Swami asked Master when he had to play the role like William the Conqueror and you had to be such a, a fierce and brutal general, how did you do it? Do you, you always know? Is what Swami was trying to get a feeling for it. Master said, inwardly, you're always free. So that's what you're working with, is that inwardly, the story swirls around you, but inwardly it doesn't have anything to do with you. And then you think of, of very uh, challenging circumstances, great disappointments, betrayals, attacks, and how to, how to stand inside of that. You know, in, in the book Sadhu Beware, which is plenty challenging as a book, there's those parts in there, there's one of them in particular where Swami suggests, he said, when people misunderstand you, don't explain yourself. And I, I, that's a, I've had a lot of fun with that because I've always explained myself. I've always thought it was intensely important for people to know. But it's, it's quite fun when people don't, just don't understand and you don't tell them. And I don't mean that in any unkind way. You don't feel the, any compelling need to tell them. Just let yourself stand as you stand. And why do, we, why do I have to be seen in a certain way? I mean, this is, 
Swamiji's recipe about how to overcome the ego, and how to always, um, you know, sometimes you, you're with people and it's so interesting, every time a criticism is offered, there's an explanation given. Well, it's really, I feel this way because, well, it's really not my fault because, and it's really not going to be, well, it's really going to be okay because, and I mean, that's an extreme situation. Um, it's, it's an interesting instruction because it's so different than any Western psychological approach. And it has to be, it has to be acted on with wisdom. I mean, you were speaking of not coming onto the path until you were older because you had a lot of, you had to get yourself psychologically organized before you were in a strong enough position to become a devotee. So, Sadhu Beware is written from the point of view of complete psychological health so that there's no um, cowardice in the silence, that the silence is entirely um, transcendent. What does it matter if people think me a fool or think me responsible? Very interesting. Let's see what that says. Oh, I wrote down here, there's a story in Ramakrishna's life, the Ramakrishna Paramhansa, the avatar from the 1800s. And he, he tells the story, and he's trying to describe some of his closest disciples about what great, great souls they were, Swami Vivekananda and some of the others. And he tells this vision of a little, he just sort of in the heavenly realms. It's just a, I don't know what it is. It's a way of explaining it. And he describes this um, um, angelic child as a little baby going through the cosmos and finding seven sages or several sages who were in deep samadhi and the baby pulls them out of their samadhi and insists that they come and be born with him. He talked about Vivekananda in that way. That he had, that, that Ramakrishna had to come and so he went and found some sages and brought them out of their samadhi and dragged them to earth with him. That's what I was thinking when I read this. When God wants me to incarnate again to help people. Is it, is it the um, a prayer of love went up from earth and you responded? A ray of your light flashed out from the heart of infinity, burst downward through night skies of consciousness and was born on earth for the redemption of mankind in human form. A prayer of love went up from earth and God responded. So is it Master's own consciousness of compassion? How does that... When Swami would talked and he often talked about not wanting to reincarnate not really wanting to come back for anything in this world and, but then at one point I remember he said I know myself <laughs> he said and uh, I would come back to help you all when he said that to me I said well that's the only reason you came this time isn't it and he said well yes <laughs> just like that <laughs> I know myself though and then he's, and by the end of his life, he just shrugged and said, I don't care. Whatever, whatever God wants of me, whatever will help. He sort of, and he wrote that, I, I think I read that at some point. Swami said, I used to have a desire to get out of this plane and get back into the heavenly realms. But now I realize wherever God puts me, what's the difference? It's a beautiful shifting. Well, now I want to read this one, nine, one, which is really fascinating. My understanding is that on this planet, Paramhansa Yogananda was and has been for many incarnations 
a special instrument of God who keeps returning in different forms to render special assistance according to God's requirements for the world's evolution. Many are the roles he has played. I have been, among other things, he said to us, a ruler, a poet, a warrior, a hermit, many times. My role as a ruler explains a natural interest I have in national and international affairs and a certain aptitude I have for them. I have been a poet. That is why poetry has come to me easily in this life. I have been a warrior. To me, Walter, that explains the fiery aspect of his personality. In Spain, his mission seems to have been to fulfill God's will for Christendom, to save its tradition. Today we would call it the Judeo-Christian tradition. He had told us also that he had been Arjuna, the great hero of the Mahabharata. Always his role seems to have been to uplift humanity, and not only to save a few spiritually seeking souls. He has been sent to launch great movements, those which were destined to affect the course of history. Thus, the theologians are not wrong encountering the claim of mystics that God cares only for man's inner life. The claim of theologians has been that God is concerned also with larger historical developments. And meditating on Paramahansa Yogananda's life and on those of others like him, one sees such indeed to have been the case. Someone once asked Anandamoyi Ma, a great woman saint in India whom I used often to visit, what will be the future of this planet in view of the violent nature of our times? She replied, Don't you think that he who created this world knows how to take care of it? My deep belief is that Paramhansa Yogananda is one of God's channels for taking care of it. This, um, taking care of this world. Someday, I believe, he will be seen as the avatar of Dwapara Yuga, Indeed, his entire life seems to have been designed for that purpose, um, to point toward a higher age that would include a greater awareness of energy. You know, there's, there's so much in those two pages. I've just been thinking about it all day since I read it. And this is something that I myself have, I just, I keep coming back to continuously and I, it all has to do with attunement, it has to do with the path we're on, it's to do with Master's special commission to Swami, our relationship to Swami. And this, um, it, and something that we're all wrestling with at this particular you know, date and time in history, where we see the possibility that the world will become more tumultuous and that um, less supportive of the life we're living and what will that ask of us and where, where do we belong in all of this. Um, and also Swamiji just touching on the, the long-standing dispute between theologians, theologians and mystics. You know, we, we go into the inner spiritual life and our teachings also constantly remind us your inner consciousness is everything. Practice Kriya Yoga, that's, you know, that's where, where we're supposed to be. Just, just do Kriya, take care of that. But then Swami just throws out this whole other idea, which is that God is paying attention. And that, that interpretation that he puts on Ananda Moima's remark, 
Don't you think the one who created this world also knows how to take care of it? I myself have quoted and heard other people quote it as a reason why don't get involved. Don't participate. Just God is taking care of it. But Swami shifts the, even the philosophy of that in a wholly other direction, which is consistent with everything else he said, which is that God always uses instruments. That God, so to speak, takes care of things, but he takes care of things by inspiring people to act. And that, you know, angels and devas and devotees and all of those who are in tune with God are being inspired by him to move in a certain way. And we're talking about doing what God wants us to do. And then he, he brings up this thought, which, you know, he said this often toward the end of his life. He, and he didn't want to... Um, uh, he, he didn't want to appear ego, egocentric or uh, grandiose. But he said, given what Master has said to him, he can't help but feel that this line of Masters has had a very special responsibility for this planet. Because we seem to have been involved in so many different places that were critical turning points in history. That Master is, as he puts it right there, one of God's special instruments for taking care of it. Well, all of this we can talk about very um, reverently about the interesting life that Master has read. Swami uh, didn't have the information when he wrote this book because later on um, Jayadev in uh, Italy researched for Swamiji who Master might have been in Spain and came up with Ferdinand and Alfonso X, which is Swami and uh, master in a previous lifetime and um, Swami became quite convinced that that was in fact the truth of it and that man, that kings, Spanish king, both of them, father and son, Yogananda and Kriyananda again, um, it was the, the Moors as it were, which was the, the anti-Christian forces were, were moving through Spain and there was, there was a war and Ferdinand and then his son Alfonso after him stood up to that invasion and pushed the Moors back and kept that area of the world Christian. I mean, from our perspective, this being Dwapara Yuga, and we're going in a different way, we have a harder time seeing that as a great, important task. But also when Master was William and went to England, it was England was being invaded from Scandinavia, and it was a wholly different... Um, uh, wait, I can't think the word escapes me at the moment. Pagan is the word I want to use, but there's another word for it. It was just a wholly different um, understanding of life. And what William brought over was Christianity. And we have to look at things in terms of the times that they were and not impose back on it. In both cases, he was taking the teachings of Jesus and making sure the Judeo-Christian tradition remained the dominant force in this part of the world. And that was, for whatever reasons, what God was trying to do. Now Master comes here, and he's, he's still working with the teachings of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus appeared to the great Master Babaji. My, my teachings have been forgotten. You have to bring the truth of my teachings there. And so Master came to show what Jesus really meant, and how it's the same thing that, Christian, uh, that Krishna meant. And all of that is part of this external drama 
that seems to be important enough for God to always take an interest in it. And so our own maturity and subtlety as deputies uh, it can't be so simplistic because we're here to serve. And this is what Swamiji talks about in lots of places, including in this book, and uses the example of his own life. Why would Master care? Why would Master say to Swamiji so strongly, you must do this for me? And Swami's twice been Master's son in lifetimes that we know, in which what Master started, Swami uh, solidified, in essence. He, he ensured its continuation. Master launched it, but when he was Henry, he's the one who put it in order. When he was Al Alfonso, he was the one who put it in order. And looking at Master's mission in this life, it seems obvious that Kriyananda is the one who's put it in order, and now it's in our hands. And I've always had this um, intense sense of participation in it. But it, it fights against um, a certain desire to just say, oh, let's just go off and be hermits. Oh, what difference does it make? I had a, a conversation uh, recently with someone about uh, the importance of what we're doing. And there was a kind of random thought that maybe someday we'll actually have an important role in the guru's work. Well, it's hard to imagine a more important moment than we're in right now. But the fact that it doesn't show and nobody cares, and think about the disciples of Jesus. What, did, what, what happened in their lifetime? Most of them ran away from him, and then the few that were left, they did. They went all over the world to tell everyone, you know, they just dispersed from that place and went and spread the good news. But it made no impression on anybody. Nobody standing there at the time would have thought that those people had chosen anything that mattered at all. They had no power, they had no position, they had no wealth. Mostly they were killed in the end. But what could have been more significant for God's work than what they were doing? And so if in fact, as seems obvious, Master's work is for the ages, um, it's our job, just like it was Swami's. I mean, I, I my own, uh, well, I'll use the word, well, laziness, fear, self-concern, lack of personal freedom, uh, complex karma, whatever words you want to use, you know, it's just not a straight line. I look at Swami and I think it was such a straight line. It doesn't feel like a straight line for me. But I don't know if it was for him. He certainly worked hard at it too. I'm going to come to that in a moment. But most of all, he never asserted he only asked the question, what does Master want and how can I serve? What does Master want and how can I serve? And this whole section, this particular reading, it just puts it in such an interesting light, doesn't it? How, uh, when I see I have to reassume a personality, God wants me to come, that our Masters have a special responsibility to this planet, that this is Dwapara Yuga, who else is going to define it? Who else is going to carry it? Who is going to spread the word but us? Uh, it's, I don't know what the details of that are, but I do think there's something super, super important for us. And how Swami's always saying, um, always talking about attunement. You know, that we just really have to attune ourselves to what's being asked of us and not merely 
what we would prefer. How many times did Swami talk about, you know, his own desire to be a hermit? How, how often did Master talk about it? What's, what's fascinating in, uh, let's see, where was it? Oh, it was in that, uh, the, the, the movie Awake, where we saw that we heard Master say those words. After he went to India in 1935, 36, he said just, oh, he said, what a relief to be in a country where you don't have to try to persuade people to be spiritual. I mean, it was a, a very, just a very natural comment. You know, whatever the issues are in India, there's just an understanding. Oh, here's a saint. Let us go to him. Let us learn what he has to learn. Where in America, Master's being, um, you know, vilified in the yellow press and sued by his own disciples. It's like, oh, do I have to go back? Do I have to go to that just place again where all they're doing is pursuing material happiness? How tiresome. And it, it's also, though, it's very important um, for us to understand even a master's life, it's not without effort. Because if, if, if we think that it's without effort, then we think because it's difficult for us to organize ourselves to do it, that somehow we shouldn't do it or that there's something wrong, we're doing something wrong. Swamiji, I won't say that he complained, that would hardly be the word, but he, he, um, he, he shared the fact that it took willpower and determination to do what he was doing. He never wavered in his determination to accomplish it, but he never um, made it seem like it didn't take everything he had to do it, because it does. That's all. You don't get in tune with the guru and serve the guru just by sitting there and drinking tea and eating cookies. You, you have to um, master yourself in order to hold yourself where you need to be. And that's, you know, th that is the spiritual path. Certainly as far as my experience of it has been, it's been every day. Let's, let's see if we can... Um, see, let's, let's see what thing we can... Let's, let's see how we can direct our willpower today to do something that's useful. And apparently serving the planet is just part of our job. Um, I could have thought of something else, but apparently this is what we need. But it's also our salvation, the, the determination to do that. Well, questions or comments before we take a short break? Um, I wanted to I, I, actually, I don't. I don't know what the balance point is for what I what I'm about to say, but um, the acceptance of responsibility for Master's work needs to be a joyous thing, not something that makes us crazy. And also the recognition that um, I certainly, I think, I speak for all of us when I say it. It's like we're all as sincere as we can possibly be. And we're all putting forth as much effort as we possibly can. And if you sincerely know that you can put out more effort, then put out more effort. But if you just think you ought to be able to put out more effort, that's something quite different. Because that just starts becoming so involved with the wave that you forget about the ocean. And so it's, it's all a very delicate balance point, but it... To my mind, what I'm really trying to talk about is this is a very distinct path that has very distinct characteristics. And, we, and it doesn't serve us 
to constantly affirm spiritual attitudes that are not fundamental to this path. I remember years ago when uh, we were we, in, in the early years of Ananda Village, which to my life it's not different. I've worked, I'm a karma yogi by nature, I'm a karma yogi by, by predilection, and so I, I've always worked a lot. It's just the way I am. I like to be active and I, I, most of my attunement comes from service. So I just do it. In the early years of Ananda Village, we were all working really hard all the time, and there was a lot more spiritual confusion. And I remember somebody showing Swami something that Master wrote, you know, his words like this, and said, uh, Master said something like, you should meditate so many hours, and then it, you've probably all read it, then you work a few, spend a few hours a day in God-reminding tasks, and then you go back to your meditation room. And they were asserting to Swami, this is the life that Master really wants us to live. And I so remember how Swami, he sort of looked and said, oh, that's for a higher age. Just went like that. It wasn't that it wasn't true, it's just not true now. And then he said, We're, we have to establish a beachhead. He thought of it in, in war, war terms. That we are in a materialistic society at the beginning of Dwapar Yuga, and our job is to make this happen. And it isn't the time for us to just sit back and enjoy the fruits of a higher age. It's just not what we're living in. And it, it isn't so much that all of us have different things to do necessarily than what we're already doing, but we, we, if we see our spiritual life in those terms, I was talking to someone who's chronologically similar to me, a few years older, and was that person who's still working very hard said, you know, but... When will I ever have time for a lot of sadhana? I said, next lifetime. <laughs> but I didn't mean it quite like that, but in fact it was true. I said, and I, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be presumptuous, but what you would get from your meditation now, I don't think compares to what you will give by finishing the task at hand. And if that means that you never really get that retirement, and that idea, then you never do. If the reason you're not is not because you're being worldly or lazy, but because there's a job to be done and I just need to keep doing it. You know, many people of my group, we sort of ask ourselves, will I just die doing this? Well, Swami did, really. I mean, Swami never stopped working right to the very end and then he was going through all of his writings and making sure everything was in order and wrote really serious books the last couple of years of his life and was still traveling and still lecturing. He never just went off to that cave. Of course, if you're called to the cave, you'll know it and you should go. But if you're not called to it, recognize that this is very, very valid and, and very important and we're part, we're called like, like Master has been called. Master is God's special instrument. Swami comes with him to make it work, and we seem to come to, with Swami to kind of pick up the, whatever pieces we can and knit the little bits together that we can. Not the least of which, not the least of which, really understand, is just the life that you're living. I mean, uh, those of you who live in, uh, have or, uh, regular jobs and live in your own homes and have that kind of life going on, it's a very valid life showing a balanced uh, devotion to God. And, and we influence, we influence out like that. 
that, I guess that's partly also what I'm talking about. It isn't so much that you have to have a banner and a, and a book and a lecture tour or anything like that. It's that we, we have to recognize that we're establishing a new kind of lifestyle and that it's a serious responsibility of ours to do that, to establish this church is a serious responsibility to get that community much more on its feet uh, financially and in all those ways. It's a serious responsibility. Education for life, it's a serious responsibility. And even just the, uh, this was my conversation, none of this really looks that important. And the little tiny parts that we play in it, they're not really that important. I'm, we're about to go into what we call in the school calendar play season. And play season meaning theater production, theater magic. Play not, not games, but theater. And uh, I, I have had the responsibility for a few years of making costumes, and I, I put that responsibility down, but I'm going to pick it up again. And now my head is just filled with all these pictures of all these people and all of the little costumes that they're going to wear, and it's hard to see it as great work, as important work on any level, but it actually is because the success of that, you know, the success of every piece of that school um, is an extraordinarily um, important foundation for a revolution in education, which I believe we are starting, and no one would think so. But so it, it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to show. It's just putting little pieces into it. I remember in the very early years of Ananda when young men were coming in their early 20s. And, um, you know, being female, I had a different mindset. But a lot of men had the, I need to make my mark in the world. I need to have a career. I need to stand up and be somebody in this world. And a lot of times, um, just as Swami writes here, more women came to Master. It was harder for men. And it was harder in those early years of Ananda for men to not want to have their own life, their own career in that, in that masculine sense. And I remember trying to explain to people that we, we have one career together. And that career is, at that time was to build Ananda because it wasn't even there. It wasn't none of what we're dealing now. We weren't working on this level at all. We were working on bare land and where are we going to live when it starts raining. And none of it was very important. It just didn't look like anything. I remember there was a joke because a lot of us were, not I wasn't, but a lot of people were highly educated and some had advanced, you know, academic degrees. And um, how did this work? This was apocryphal, but this is how... uh, it went. This one couple had came and they had this little business. I think one of their parents owns a swimming pool vacuum cleaner company. That was it. And they were, they were hippies and they, they gypsied around and they'd made an arrangement with their parent that they would sew the vacuum cleaner bags and then ship them back and that, this way they could be hippie gypsies. So they end up at Ananda and they're living there for a while and there's apparently we need a lot of these vacuum cleaner bags and the sewing is just, you know, like nothing. It's not even like the sewing is not even anything. So up in the hundred-year-old barn, up way up in the um, rodent-infested rafter place, they set up a little place where people could do these, and so people would sit there and sew these things. 
and Jyotish imagine this story where this is just was typical in Nanda, where somebody, a guest comes in on a Sunday and they find the little factory of people sewing these things and someone says to the person sewing the vacuum cleaner bags, did you have any experience at sewing before you came to Ananda? And the mythical person says, well, in a way, I, I, you might say I was a surgeon. <laughs> I remember Anandi, and I believe Anandi has a master's degree in city planning or something like that. Economics? Well, she has some high-level degree of some sort. And she was out in the garden weeding in 110 degree weather and had been out in the garden weeding for a couple of years and some guest comes. This was a true story. It just sort of says something about, you know, this work is not worthy of me. And Anandi just smiled and said, a lot of us are overqualified for the work we're doing. <laughs> because a lot of us were overqualified from a certain point of view. But from another point of view, I just... I, we were so thrilled to have something we actually felt qualified to do, which was to serve the Master. And so we were just doing little things, having good spirit. Even, you know, uh, at, at that time, and, uh, we, everybody went to Sunday service. Partly everybody went to Sunday service because we all lived so close together and nobody had cars. And if you didn't show up, it was either you, you, were, you were dead or sick in your trailer. And it's like... You had to come because everybody knew there was, you had no life other than that because we, we all knew where everyone was at every moment, literally. And so, but we all came to Sunday service because if we didn't come, there was no Sunday service. It didn't have a life. Ananda did not exist except for our commitment to it. And so everything that we, we had to participate in everything just as a service because otherwise it wasn't going to happen. And I'm, I know I've talked about that sometimes in here, but everybody coming and making things happen here, especially Sunday, the most important being Sunday, because Sunday is a time also when people come who aren't that in tune with it yet and are walking in to try to find out what's happening. And whether there's anything happening here or not is not dependent on the four walls. It's dependent on the vibrations that people put into it. So part of our service is to make this temple and, and our community actually work. So that we can, we can say, from my own experience, look, my, look how different my life is. Let's see, what was I trying to remember what Swami... Oh, yes. Um, Swamiji wrote a letter. This is just, you know, the stuff I've been doing in the last few days. In 1989, and it was about the necessity, it was about self-realization as being the key to world brotherhood and peace for the planet. And he talked about trying to get religion to be respected again on the planet and the fact that it's not, it's not respected because people are so dogmatic and so narrow-minded. And science has made objective reality, not dogmatism and belief, the criteria. So religionists who are still just asserting dogmatism and blind belief, nobody respects them anymore. And he talked about how Ananda can serve as a place where the underlying unity of all religions, being self-realization, can be understood because the essence of life is escaping sorrow and searching for happiness. And the principles that allow us to escape sorrow and find happiness are universal and proved by experience. They are not dogmas. 
and, th and then he goes through love, patience, kindness, all of those virtues. The reason that they are proposed by every scripture is because your experience will show you that they will reduce sorrow and increase happiness. And then Swami says, and the life at Ananda proves it. Because we are the laboratory for self-realization. And it just was so beautifully put. And therefore every person, every single person who is living the principles of self-realization and the context of Ananda is where we all are, is contributing step by step to that gradual um, embracing, really literally by the whole planet, into our Para Yuga of that truth because we've proved it. I mean, I don't, you, you understand? You see how magnificent that is? And how it makes every one of us, every single one of us in our unique way, absolutely essential. I was starting to say with the men at the beginning, oh, I did say that. We have one career. That career is to make this work succeed. And that's how your wave gets closer to the ocean instead of standing out from it. And it's so... Uh, discipleship is very, very refined. It's not at all obvious. It's very refined. Okay, any comments or questions? I guess because I've been working so much on Swami's life and all of the history of it, it I just feel it so powerfully. But I've always felt it. Always been a bit of a rabble-rouser on this point. Hmm. Also, for me personally, it's like I so, I so desperately wanted to do something that mattered when I was younger. I just, meaningful work. Everybody has different things that move them. I must have spent a lot of lives in just mind-numbing, stolifying, useless work <laughs> because I just so wanted to be able to do something that I could look back at and say that was worth doing. I didn't, I wasn't looking to be famous or rich or anything like that. I just didn't want to waste my time. I wanted to feel, I, d I intended to raise a family because before I found Ananda that was, I thought that's useful. You know, I'll be a, a mother and I'll take care of people and then they'll be happier and I'll feel, that felt like, that felt like meaningful work to me. And that was, I held that. That was my whole life ambition until I met Ananda. And then all of a sudden, I've been almost just like that. Oh, this is what I really want. I just want to, I, I want there to be integrity in my effort. So, I also realized that just getting pregnant wouldn't make me a better person. <laughs> I somehow thought it would automatically. <laughs> okay, shall we move on? Are there any comments? One nine two. Another way that God is taking care of the world is by what he called cross-incarnation. Souls are being born, the Master said, in such a way as to help bring about a greater balance on earth. Now, isn't that interesting? Many souls are being brought, for, brought from India. I mean, like brought from India? Like are they stored in India? Many souls are being brought from India to America and Europe, and many others are being brought from America and Europe to India. Amazing choice of words. Thus, many Americans today have Indian samskars, tendencies, 
and many modern Indians feel comfortable with American and Western values. Thus, too, the world is being united in a more Dwapara Yuga consciousness. I mean, when you go back to thinking about when we were in the astral world and we were really trying to decide where to be born, I, I've had this strange thing where I've never looked right to myself in the mirror and I finally actually really understood it one day when I saw this woman with this beautiful chocolate skin when we were, I was at the YMCA. And she just, and all of a sudden, I, I, it's odd that it never occurred to me before that I've always been the wrong color. <laughs> I just don't, I don't understand all this, this pale thing here. It's like the people with dark skin and dark hair and dark eyes. That's what I'm supposed to look like. But when Master says we were brought over from India, like in a big crate or something. Yes, Nishkama? Uh -huh, there it is. Uh -huh. um, it just occurs to me that we, we think of uh, making a personal choice, uh, something that will benefit us most spiritually when we decide what our target um, incarnation spot is. And, and what you said just now, it suggests that perhaps there are other influences involved than simply uh, our own um, inward um, choices. Well, part of our inward being brought, being brought here. Well, and part there. of our inward choice would be to serve Master's work, and so being willing to be born on the shores of materialism, rather than in perhaps what is our native home. I thought of it that way. We have, we cooperate with it because it's all consistent with what we're about. Right. Yeah. And and I believe in some context, I I recall just. You know, it, it, it's a bit dangerous to be born in such a materialistic country. And not every, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a risk. And especially in such a licentious country where so many, where all desires can be fulfilled and all moral standards nowadays are down. You know, whatever you might have in you, uh, nothing in the environment protects you from it. And so it's, it, it's, a, it's a risk. It's a serious risk, and I'm sure there have been a lot of casualties among us. It's been many incarnations since delusion has grabbed so-and-so. I mean, Master said that about someone. But there it is. But we did it, we did it for service, and also for opportunity, you know, because Rajasi was born in America because of his passion for cleanliness and health, you know, and order. I know a man who was born not in, in the Mideast, not in India, but in the Mideast, and he talked about when he finally got to America. And he just sort of, he'd been holding his breath the whole time because it was so disorderly where he was born. And when he got to here, it was all so orderly. It was just like, oh, this is the country that I belong to. Whereas some of us, when we've gone to India, it's not like the disorder of India is attractive or the struggle or the overpopulation. But there's something else going on under there that has this. God's will. Of course, we're just trying we to can. do God's will. But what Master's articulating here is that part of what's happening now, he's, he's just giving us these very subtle pictures of how it's happening and all of the confusion, incredible confusion that this is causing because people are just breaking. Uh, well, I have had this interesting experience in India when I was traveling there a few years ago. And I was lecturing and giving programs and... Um, you meet multiple generations there more easily than you do here often. Several generations will come to the programs that you're giving because people are all 
parents, grandparents, they're all involved with each other. And I, in my position, I often have had multi-generational friendships. So I have a, a, a positive confidential friendship with the parents and a positive confidential friendship with their children. And right now in India especially, what the parents, some, expect of their children and think their children are doing are not really always what their children are actually doing. And I'm, you know, I can sort of, I can watch that. And I remember talking to this one particular woman who's an Indian woman who's an executive in a European country, a company based in India. She hires a great many young people into her company and she knows that when those Indian people go to Europe, they behave like Europeans and then they come back to the Indian culture and then they pretend that they're still Indian. Her children are just a little younger. And, uh, but she still expects that her children are going to follow all the traditional ways. And she's um, self-aware enough to um, admit that perhaps that's naive on her part. But see, part of the reason that's happening is because of all this cross-incarnation. Uh, the, the most dramatic example I ever saw was the son of our, our tour guide, a man named Ram, who was our tour guide in the city of Varanasi. Ram was a very, very traditional Brahmin in a very traditional part of India. He had five daughters, and his, the goal of his entire life was to raise the dowry for all those five daughters. There was not one physical item in his house. Everything was sold and used, and he, he made dowries for five daughters. There's even a word for it, our tour guide, Sanjay, our, our Indian guide there. He had a word for it, you know, the great, the great father who raises that many dowries. Sixth child was a son, and all five of the women were the daughters, and the mother was very traditional, and all the daughters were very traditional. Just everybody played out this whole thing. The son, whose name meant jewel of the family, I don't know what the word was, um, all of them were very short. He was about 6'4", and he looked as about American as an Indian can look and still have an Indian body. He was the most Western man and he immediately went into the cell phone business and I, he, he just wandered around among those people and, and those people meaning his family and you, I just would, you would look at him like it was like a cuckoo egg had been dropped into the nest there and he was it was good. He was taking care of everybody. You know, he was going to be a very wealthy man. He was going to take care of all these people. But just so weird. And I can imagine himself just looking at, the, at his house and the city and his father and his sisters and his brothers-in-law. Like, and I'm sure they're all saying to each other, who are these people like that? And in the world that I came up in, I was remembering this back when we were hippies and we were dropping out, uh, my uh, a Jewish mother that I knew well, whose son had left everything, all the promising things that they'd worked their whole life to make happen for him. He just dropped out, turned his back, and never went back. She just said to me, every Jewish family I know has lost at least one child. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, and it was always the most promising one. You know, so there it was. We were all raised up to be, and it was true. I mean, I knew it among all my circle of friends. You know, I dropped out of Stanford. 
and everybody, we all dropped out of some prestigious college, yeah. What were you going to say, Karen? I'll add to your story because it's so funny. Um, my husband is a, a son uh, in a family of three children. Two of the sons left to become disciples of different gurus. And the mother, one day on Passover, called and said, it does a Jewish mother's good heart good to know that her respective sons are at their ashrams on the high holy days. <laughs> well, I mean, Jews are a particular thing, which I, of course, have some familiarity with, but 10% of Ananda was Jewish, and it might still be. And because, and this is what my, this Jewish lady mother at that time said to me too, Jews are in the forefront. You know, they're always in the, they always lead the revolutions whether it's the Bolsheviks or the New Age in America, it's just what it is, because we're trained that way, and that's our particular cultural bend, is to be aggressive, you know, in, in revolution. But, but what, that, what that really is, is this, it's this cross-incarnation. We just were born into the Western world where we needed to be in order to have the opportunities we needed to get where we needed to go to do this, to just make this. And, Gosh, you can see what a nightmare it is for people who are trying to hold things together. I mean, it's just a nightmare for them. They have gay people in their own families, and they have people, you know, uh, ma making cross-cultural marriages and repudiating the careers. It's just, it's a nightmare if you're trying to hold it. It's a marvelous lark if you're into the new age, but not if you're not. And it's happening in all countries. So it's very interesting times. But this is part of our job. I mean, I'm also saying this is really, this is our job, is to usher in Dwapara Yuga. And if it gets a little dicey along the way, I mean, we could have been out there with Arjuna. We could have been out there with William. We probably were. We're probably out there with our bows and arrows and our guns and our swords and our whatever because that was what was required then. Now it's something quite different. So far, we'll see what happens next. But it's part of our job. And uh, uh, part of our attunement. Fascinating, huh? Okay, that'll be it for tonight. So let me say, we went through, we started at, we started at 186 and we got through 192.